We're going to be looking tonight in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, if you've turned with us in the Word of God. And I'm glad there is victory in Jesus. That's where the victory's at tonight. That's where the blessing's at tonight in the Lord. And uh, he uses his word primarily, basically today, to communicate the blessings. I'm aware the Holy Spirit brings the blessing, but the word of God is the instrument whereby we stay in touch with him. And tonight we're looking at the last chapter of this First Thessalonian letter. Last week, you, those of you that were here, you recall we entitled the message, How to Please Your Father. And we found that in chapter 4, he tells us there's at least five different ways, different things we can do that pleases God. Tonight we pick up in chapter 5, and I've entitled the message, How to Live Until Jesus Comes. In the first 11 verses, those of you that put the outline down in the Bible study time, we're, we've broken the chapter up in a twofold way. Verses 1 through 11 talks about the day of the Lord. And then verses 12, at least down through verse 23, we entitle it, The Duties of Christians. The day of the Lord. And in light of his coming, Paul takes his pen, and of course the Holy Spirit inspired him to do it, and he just tells us as believers, writing to the church there in Thessalonica, but talking to us here at this church, talking to God's people, of course, of all ages, he tells us in light of the Lord's coming, how we ought to live, how we ought to behave, how we ought to conduct ourselves, and much of what he has to say will be to a church collectively, some to us as individuals, but some of these admonitions will be uh, to us as a group. And when First Thessalonians 5, those of you that have joined us, and really you've heard me say it and you're well aware, you Bible students are, that these chapter divisions like chapter 3, 4, 5, and so on, uh, they were added by the translators. When Paul wrote this letter, he just wrote them an epistle. He wrote them a letter. It wasn't broken up in chapters or verses. And so really chapter 5 in the first 11 verses, he picks up with what he was just talking about. I had a funeral service yesterday afternoon, and I looked at verses 13 down to 18 in part of the scriptures that I shared with the group there in the chapel. And I made reference to the fact that the believers of that day had been told when some of their loved ones were taken in death that uh, since Paul had been talking so much about the Lord's coming, they had questions. What's going to happen to them? Since they have been taken in death, we learned last week that he uses the figure of speech, asleep, pictures physical death, the body being put to sleep. And we learned last week that Paul said the Lord is coming. There'll be his return. There'll be a rapture of believers be called up to meet him in the air, be a resurrection of the, those that are asleep in Christ, and then the living ones will be changed. We learned that we'd all be called up to meet the Lord together in the air. And he, and he closed by saying, comfort or encourage one another with these words. Then chapter 5 opens with this statement, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the first 11 verses because when we come to 2 uh, uh, Thessalonians, the second chapter, then Paul's going to pick up this theme again. Paul will write his second letter to correct some errors of his day. And one of the errors was this. They were being told that they were already in the tribulation called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has nothing to do with the rapture, so that's a very important statement here that we need to see in verse 2. Paul said, Brethren, times and seasons you have no need that I write unto you. Now it's amazing how much Paul taught this early church about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, he was only there at the most about three weeks and they ran him out of town. He established a church, 
taught them so much uh, uh, about the second coming and then wrote them this letter and said to them, Brethren, you have no need. That is, if I could paraphrase it, he says, not necessary for me to talk to you about the day of the Lord. He'd already explained that to them. And the day of the Lord, keep in mind, is not the rapture. You see, his coming, there's two phases, two aspects of the coming of the Lord. He comes for us, we go up to meet him in the air, and then the day of the Lord uh, immediately begins the tribulation, ushers in the day of the Lord, and it'll, it will conclude after a thousand years on this earth. All of that time has to uh, comes under this little expression, the day of the Lord. So Paul is saying, brethren, I, you have no need that I write unto you about the times and seasons. And that you remember the disciples asked our Lord before he ascended back to heaven. And he said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. It's a reference to his coming back to this earth. So in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he talks about the day of the Lord. He, he, he talks to us about the meaning of that day. He talks to us about the method of that day, how he will come. He says he'll come as a thief in the night. Of course, that doesn't have to do with the rapture. We're looking for the rapture. Christians are expecting the Lord. And so this is when he comes back and deals with Israel in particular and judges this world, the awful time. Jesus says there's never been a time like it, never shall there be. He called it the great tribulation. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, I won't go in detail. We'll look at it when we get to chapter 2 of the second letter. But so much in the Old Testament talked about, and sometimes instead of giving the whole reference, the day of the Lord, it just says that day. If you read the minor prophets, so-called, you'll find all of them talks about that day, that day, that day. And what day they were talking about was the day when the wrath of God would come on this earth. And then after the seven-year period of tribulation, of course, Jesus Christ will come back and he'll reign on this earth. And the reason it's called the day of the Lord, in essence, it's going to be his day. He's not really having his day in world affairs now. He's not on a throne on this earth now. Yonder in the United Nations, his name is never mentioned. He's not even allowed to be mentioned, not as the Lord Jesus Christ. It might offend some heathen there that doesn't believe in him. And so he's not being recognized in the affairs of the world today. But in that day, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as, uh, as the waters cover the sea, and there won't be a bit of rebellion against him. And when he says the day of the Lord, it don't mean a 24-hour period. The word is used in a sense sometimes we talk about the day of our youth or the day of old age. It's a period of time. So let me see if I can just simplify what would take a lot of messages to really go in detail. If the Lord should come tonight, every living believer would be changed, called up to meet him. Every dead Christian, their bodies would be resurrected. He'd bring their spirit with him, and they'd be rejoined to that body, and that body would be resurrected. We looked last week, it says that we'd all be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. He won't come all the way to the earth. Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to preach through the book of the Revelation. The Lord has already been leading, and uh, I'm praying about what service, perhaps even on Sunday mornings out in the future. Uh, I guess one of the most rewarding studies in, in, that God's ever led us through was on Sunday mornings once for a year. We preach through the entire book of the Revelation, and God, I have, I have on... Uh, on file, letters where people uh, got the tapes and said God used that series as no series they'd heard to just uh, to comfort and to encourage, to enlighten. But chapter 4 in the book of the Revelation, uh, John, the writer, is a representative. He said he heard a voice that say, come up hither. And from chapter 4 all the way to 19, you'll never find a church on this earth. You find the tribulation period on this earth. But you don't find the church on this earth. The church is up there with him. And when he comes back, we come back with him to this earth. A lot of people will get saved through the tribulation period. There'll be such a number they won't even, you can't even number them. 144,000 Jews will be sealed. Not false witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim. But 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, he'll seal them. And the word seal means he protects them. And he'll send them out proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Be like 144,000 apostle Pauls. And that's what it means when he says, 
before he comes back to the earth, the gospel will reach the four corners of the earth. I was preaching in Dallas, Texas, and the fellow said, uh, I believe I've caught you in a, uh, oh, in an error. He said, you said you believe the Lord could come any day, and I do believe that. And I personally believe, as I'll probably preach Sunday morning on his second coming, I personally believe, though I won't set a date, I believe this is the generation I see the coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I said something like that, and the man said, but are you aware that the Bible says the gospel will be preached to the four corners of the earth and all peoples will hear the gospel. And he said, surely you understand there's a lot of peoples on the earth, a lot of different nations has never heard the gospel of Christ. But I said, sir, rightly divide the word. You're taking the scriptures out of context. You know when God will let this word go to the four corners of the earth? It'll be in the tribulation days. He seals those those 144,000 Jews and sends them out as flaming evangelists and multitudes say, the Bible said they come speaking from every tongue, means every language, and they come from that, that period of the great tribulation. And he said they're innumerable, multitudes will be saved. But there'll be no one saved that turns down the love of the truth in this age. They'll believe the lie of the system, the Antichrist, his philosophy of that day. And so we'll learn much of that when we come into chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul deals with the day of the Lord, in particular, what has to happen before he comes back to this earth. But chapter 5 in our study tonight, verses 1 through 11, he talks about the meaning. It means he's coming back to the earth, the method. He's going to come. Uh, he says there'll be a time when they begin to say, peace and safety. Look at verse 3. Now, note Paul didn't say a time when we will be saying that. He's not putting Christians there. Look at verse 4, how he changes. He says, but ye. Verse 3, but he says they. And in verse 3, he's not talking about saved people. He's talking about lost people. You see, immediately after the rapture, when Antichrist comes on the scene, and his platform is going to be peace. And they're going to be saying, we've never had it so good. There's going to be a, a time of false peace for a while, and then he'll set himself up as God, want to be worshipped as God, and there'll be an awful war, but it won't take place till after about three and a half years on this earth. And you know what they're going to be saying? Peace and safety. And he says, sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail. Up a woman with child means it's inevitable, it's a must. It must take place. Sooner or later, a mother that's expectant mother, sooner or later, the travail time comes. And Paul says, they shall not escape. So he talks about not only the meaning of this time, the day of the Lord, he talks about the method. There'll be a suddenness. There'll be a severity in the judgment of the tribulation period. Our Lord said there's never been a time. The uh, Bible says it's going to be severe. Men will be crying for mountains, rocks to cover them. Bible said that men will try to die through that time. They'll wish for death. They won't even be able to die. There's going to be such severe judgment. There'll be pieces of ice fall out of the heaven from 60 to 120 pound pieces of ice will fall out of the heavens on this earth. God will scorch men with the heat of the sun until those men will gnaw their tongues for pain and still they'll blaspheme God. One man said to me one time, you'd think men under that in much pain would praise God and cry out for mercy. If the Holy Spirit's not dealing with a man, he'll, he'll not cry to God. And uh, in, that, in that intense pain, the Bible says that they'll, they'll still blaspheme God. It's if there was no eternal hell, and in fact, don't misunderstand me, there is. But if there was no eternal hell, just to be saved from the tribulation period is something wonderful tonight. You say, is the Bible clear we're saved from that? Yes, look at the rest of these verses and you'll see it. He not only talks about the meaning of the day of the Lord and the method of it, but he talks about the message of the day of the Lord. Those are, that's in verses 4 through 11. Verse 4 and 5, he talks about two groups of people. He says one group's in what he calls uh, darkness and the other's in light. Verse 5, well, verse 4, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of light. Children of the day, we're not of the night nor of darkness. And he's using the, uh, the word day in this sense here as a synonym for light and, and uh, as opposite of darkness or night. And we've been talked, he talks in many places about when we get saved, we're brought out of the darkness, we're brought into light. And that's just Paul's way of saying 
There's two groups. And uh, one group's in light, other group's in darkness. Verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul says the message of the day of the Lord. He said, first, it, it, it examines, it ought, to, it ought to challenge us and speak to us to see if we're in, the, in that crowd that's been brought out of darkness. See if we're in the, uh, the family of God. And then he said in verse 8, it, it, the message exhorts us. That is, it challenges us. And then verse 9 through 11 it encourages us. Look at those verses. He says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. That's a reference to the tribulation period. That's the judgment that's out, out ahead. And God hasn't made an appointment for believers to be there. But to obtain salvation, the word there, salvation in its complete, fullest sense, deliverance he's talking about. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, he's saying whether we die physically or whether we're still alive or awake when the rapture takes place, we should live together with him. And so Paul says the message of the day of the Lord is one of encouragement. A lot of verses. I'm going to preach an entire message before long on why the church will not go through the tribulation. I'll give you four or five principles and a lot of verses. Here's one of them. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the word salvation, there is deliverance from that awful time of tribulation upon this earth called the wrath of God, called the day of Jacob's trouble, called the time of judgment on this earth. And Paul is simply saying believers do not have an appointment. You see, we're looked upon as his body. He's the head. And he's already gone through judgment. And, and Paul says for the believer, when he dies, there's something far better. If he had to go through the tribulation, he could never say, to die is gain, and I look forward to the future. And so rest assured, there is no, no tribulation judgment upon the earth that a believer has to go through. So I've hurried through those verses, and we'll pick up almost the same theme when we come to the second letter, the second chapter. Next few minutes we'll take tonight. Let's look at verse 12 following. And I call this part of the chapter the duties of the believer, of the Christian. First part is the day of the Lord. Now in light of that, how should we live? We learned last week there were believers over there at that church that had actually, they'd gone to an extreme, they wouldn't work, they're saying something like this, well, if the Lord's going to come, I mean, there's no point in having a job, and, and they, were, they had become uh, impractical. And Paul is going to say to us again in this next letter, chapter 3, correcting that error, he said, if they don't work, don't let them eat. There were people at that church, they were just becoming parasites and living off of other people. They had no sense in looking for a job. The Lord's going to come. And uh, Paul said, oh, no, the, the, the truth about the coming of the Lord doesn't make a person impractical. And so now he's going to say to us, what are the duties? I mentioned last week, sometimes people say, well, I live by the commandments. Well, I want to ask, what commandments? There's 16 of them right here. And you may want to just put them down. You could even maybe list more than that. I've noticed in reading different men's uh, comments from this passage, uh, one at least had 20-some different commandments. I think, I think some of them are overlapping. I, I've listed 16 tonight. That's very clear. He's saying to us without any, any confusion, here's some things now, since we've been brought out of darkness into light, since we're in the family of God, and in light of the Lord's coming, here's some things that the church ought to be doing. Look at verse 12, how he starts it, I beseech you. Now, Paul was an apostle. Paul could have, you to excuse the expression, he could have sort of thrown his weight around a little and said, I command you. But he's going to use a, a sort of a pastoral term. That's a, that's a strong term. That's really, we could use the word, I beg you, I plead with you. Someone has said it's, it's the picture of a fellow down on his knees begging and saying, I beseech you, I plead with you. Uh, incorporate these things in your life. One of his favorite words is brethren. Paul always looked upon God's people as a family. 
If you have a brother tonight, uh, that, that's part of the family. You got into the family through the birth, and, and you become a brother in the family. And so Paul says in verse number 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, the first duty in light of the day of the Lord, I beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now you may want to put down in verse 12 is the first, is the first duty, the first commandment. And the word know there actually means recognize them. Now keep in mind when Paul was in this city, he founded this church. They were no believers when Paul went there. All of them were saved along about the same time. And there was a number of people, large number of people saved. This church was established, and Paul, I repeat, left there. He was there only about three weeks. There were other, other men working with Paul. And you see, these people had just come into the family of God, and God called some of them and gifted them to be their teachers, their leaders. He called some to be the pastors. And uh, they were having a little difficulty because the word that he uses that we do not see here, where the word where he says know them, uh, it indicates that they were having a little bit trouble, a little trouble of recognizing them uh, being their leaders. Now keep, keep in mind, let me see if I can illustrate. Here's a group of people, let's say all of a sudden, all of them got saved in the same month. You knew each other before you came into the family of God. You knew each other in the outside world, we'll say. And all of a sudden now, in the fellowship, in the assembly, here's a fellow stands up to be your instructor. Here's a fellow is your teacher. Here's a fellow is your leader. Now, from the human standpoint, it'd be a little tempting to say, wait a minute. He got in about the same time I did. Now, they hadn't been off the seminary. They hadn't been off the Bible school. They'd all got saved same time, established that church. And someone goes thinking, well... Why is he the leader? Why is he a teacher, not me? It was because, and he's going to say, esteem him highly in love for the work's sake. Wasn't, not because of some other uh, ability that he recognized. That wasn't the reason he called him. You see, it's the Holy Spirit's business where he places people in the body of Jesus Christ, in his church, and the gifts that he gives each individual. And I believe every believer has at least one spiritual gift, and that's his doing. And Paul was saying to them, those that's over you, those that labor among you and over you in the Lord, and admonish you, Paul says, you know them. I repeat the word, for know there means to recognize them, recognize their authority. Now these first three commandments, Paul puts these together sort of in a unit. And these first ones, there'll be three of them in verses 12 and 13. So you may want to, I've taken on my notes outline here and just drawn a circle, put the three together. All these first three, he deals with the church about the business of those that's in leadership over them. So he said, first of all, he said, you're to know them. That's verse 12. That is, recognize them. Recognize that they've been placed there by God himself. And then verse 13 is the second commandment. I said there's 16 of them down to, down to verse 23. He said, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, he didn't go ahead and say a lot of other reasons why that you may hold someone in esteem and honor. But he said, for their work's sake. God placed them in, I repeat, in the body, in the family, in that fellowship, and gave them a particular work. Some teachers, some administrators, uh, some he called to be the pastor there. And the church, when Paul wrote back to that church, that church had grown. And no doubt it was a, another fellowship in Thessalonica area. And Paul said, you, he's going to command them to close, that this letter be read to all the brethren. What did he say do? He said, recognize those that's in the leadership as the spiritual leaders. And then Paul says to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. I said to someone on just yesterday, we were talking, and I hadn't seen this person. I pastored this person all uh, 15 years ago, and, uh, and was reminiscing. They was asking some questions, and I said to the, the person in particular, and the whole family was there where we were talking at, 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 before the funeral service, and uh, 
I said to him, and one made the statement, said that God's been good to you, hasn't he, preacher? And I said, he sure has. I said, he sure has. And uh, they asked something about uh, where I had the privilege to serve here now. I said to him, well, I said, I, uh, I said, you may have heard me say this 15 years ago. I said it then. I've said it in all the places where I've had the privilege of serving. But I said to them, and I say it before you tonight, I said to them, I've never been happier in my life than I am right now. I've never been more contented. I said, I've never been more excited about the prospects the Lord has for us, the future, the, the ministry that's before us. And I said this, and I'll say it to you. I said, I've never been treated with more respect and love and a sense of appreciation from a people than I'm being treated from you, dear people. If I say that to you back, I want to say it to your face. And I want to thank God for you tonight. And then I said, God has opened doors for this unworthy preacher uh, all over the country, and at least in, in, in many different parts of the country. And I said, God has given friends to this unworthy preacher. Just about everywhere that I've had the privilege and a door open, and I, I don't say this in a boastful way, God forbid. I'm humble to even think of what I'm sharing with you now. But hardly any place that we've had the privilege of going that there hadn't been Loving friends there, but open their homes, won't open their home, want you to come in, want you to come neat, want you to do this, do nice things for you. God says here to a church that evidently was not respecting their leader, was not following their leader, was not, uh, uh, not esteeming the leader uh, in love, as he says here, for the work's sake. And uh, I thought, now, I do not have to labor that point here. I would not do it anyway. But there's no need to do that because of the, of the relationship that's here. So, but evidently at that church, Paul was saying to them, know them, that is recognize them as, as the leader and then esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then verse 3, also of verse 13, is the third commandment. Look what he says. After he said esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and then he says be at peace among yourselves. But it stands to reason if they were not following the leader, they had no peace. They'd be nothing but chaos. No, uh, nobody could, has room for two heads. No organization. If you have no leadership in an organization, you have nothing but confusion and chaos, and there is no peace. And so I don't wonder that he had to tie these three together. He was saying, now, here's a church that need to recognize who their leaders were, and then they need to esteem the, the, those leaders in love for their work's sake, and then to be at peace among yourselves. Those three commandments, talking to the church sort of as a body, go together. And then the, the fourth one is in verse 14. And I do not wonder that it comes right on the heel after talking right on the heel of the, these, this unit of the three put together. He says, now we exhort you. He's using a little bit different word than he did beseech you. Paul's transferring now and using the word. With the, uh, Paul is saying uh, he's given an exhortation. He's, uh, he, he's given a warning. Brethren, he's saying, warn them that are unruly. Now that's the fourth commandment. I said there's 16 of them from verse 12 to verse 23. The word unruly there is a term that's associated, it's a military term. And it means someone that's stepping out of, out of he's, he's, not, he's stepping out of order. He's stepping out of, uh, he's a little bit out of step. He's not in step, he's sort of a loner. He's not going to walk to the music of the rest of them. He wants to do it his own way. That's the idea, that's the picture. And Paul is saying to that church, after he is saying now, the Holy Spirit put a leader in that church, and, and you're to recognize that leader as being God's leader, and you're to esteem them in love for their work's sake, and then be at peace, not have a bunch of confusion and chaos, because that would cause the collapse of the church. And then he's saying to the brethren, the leaders right in that church, the word brethren there again, he's talking to the leader. He is saying, warn them, and that's the same word for admonish back there a moment ago. Monish who? The unruly. I repeat, that's someone that's not going to cooperate with the program. That's someone not going to recognize the leadership. 
that someone is not going to walk in step with the rest. And Paul says, admonish the unruly. And then also in verse 14, after he says, warn them the unruly, he says, comfort the feeble-minded. Now that's the fifth commandment from verse 12 down there. You may want to write a word out beside the word feeble-minded. That doesn't have anything to do uh, with the mental. That's not talking about some person that's mentally retarded. That has nothing to do with that. That's not even the word. And so you may want to, you may want to write beside the word the idea. It's the faint-hearted. It's, it's one who's losing heart. It's a person that's a quitter, easily discouraged. And he says, come. That's the word we looked at last week in verse 18 of the fourth chapter. It says, comfort one another with these words. Uh, it's an interesting word. I won't go into a lot of detail. It just simply means it's, uh, uh, it's strength within. Holy Spirit's called the comforter. He's the one that's called to stand alongside, to, to sort of hold us up, to give us that, that strength we need within us. And he's saying, if you know of a believer that's, that loses heart, that's faint-hearted, you know of somebody that's tempted to quit and throw in the towel, want to give up? He said, don't, don't criticize them. If they're faint-hearted, if they're... And, and, and again, I repeat, he says, comfort the feeble-minded. You can check any word study you want to, and you'll find, again, I repeat, it has nothing to do with a, a mental problem at all. It talks about a, a person who is a little timid. Two or three times it's translated from other, other translations as, as talks about being timid. Being a person that just doesn't really have heart. They're fearful to, to speak for the Lord. They're, a lot of people fearful to lead in prayer. They're a little faint-hearted to say a word publicly. And he, if you know somebody, and by every church, I can tell you people's that way. I don't call them to lead in prayer. I don't embarrass them. I, don't, I have had people say to me, please don't call on me to lead in prayer in public. I don't put them down when they say that. And, and I don't put them on the spot and embarrass them to call them either. But if I can, I'll try to encourage I'll try to find out. Sometimes it would be something lodged back that we may sort of feel like I have an inferiority complex or something. But uh, oftentimes it's a person's temperament. And Paul was saying to that church, he's saying, now, you comfort the faint-hearted. I repeat, don't criticize them. Don't put them down. Don't step on them. He says, encourage them. Comfort them. We all know what a comforter is. <laughs> I was in church some years ago and uh, the pastor said, would you mind staying in a home? said, the motel is a long ways from here where the church is. I was near, let's see where I was at. I was not far out of Somerset, Kentucky. Where's uh, Monticello, Kentucky, in that area? And he said, uh, most of our folks are farmers. And he said, one of our families has a large home. said, the entire upstairs, there's a private bath up there. And said, it's a lovely place. And they love preachers. And they wondered if you would uh, mind staying in their home the three days you're here in the conference. And I said, that'll be fine. I'll... I'll fit right in, and, and it was in the wintertime, and she said, Brother Hurt, we just give our comforter to the special guest. Now, how many knows what a comforter is? You know what I'm talking about. I, I remember reading up on the comforter. I read who, who came up with that, and it goes way back in the Victorian age, and there was an English lady, and it's sort of really it's described as two quilts that's filled with feathers and the things sewed together. Hmm. Well, I, I hope they don't get this tape. I appreciate their kindness to me, but I tell you, that thing didn't bring me much comfort that night. Silk? I, I was busy uh, through the night pulling the thing up on me. It's over here on this side. It'd slide over here, and it'd be over here. And I thought, they call that thing a comforter. Well, I wouldn't have told those folks that for anything in the world, you know, because they were, I was their special guest. They were being good to me, but... That, uh, that didn't give me a lot of comfort that night. It wouldn't stay on me. But uh, we call that a comforter. What Paul was saying here, he's saying, if you know, you know someone that's faint-hearted, you know somebody that's, that's pitched in the towel, somebody, and uh, somebody that's, that, that, uh, you know, that's a quitter, they, they're always losing heart and quitting. Paul said, you go to them. Encourage them. Find you somebody. Let that be a ministry. That's a command. He said, you find somebody that's, that's faint-hearted and fearful and just sort of give yourself to them and lift them up, hold them up. 
Well, that's one of the commands. We've looked at the command to know those that's over us and to esteem them very highly in love and to be at peace among ourselves. We've learned to look at the commandment to warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. Verse 14, we find the sixth one here. And he says, support the weak. And uh, the word weak there is not referring to someone weak physically because that's not the subject he's dealing with. He's talking about uh, spiritual needs, spiritual problems. And so he's really t he's talking about someone maybe that's still just a babe in the faith. Somebody that's, uh, that's very weak and hasn't grown yet. And uh, the word support there, the same idea is in the word comfort. He's saying encourage them, strengthen them. And then that's the sixth commandment. The seventh commandment, Paul says, be patient toward all men. Now, this goes beyond the family of God. This goes beyond the, uh, our immediate family. It goes beyond the local family of the church here. It even goes beyond the family of God outside of our local gathering here. He's talking about mankind. Now, that's a big order right there. Be patient toward all men. That's what he says. It's really, uh, he's saying, be long-suffering toward. His opposite is losing the temper. He's saying someone bumps you, someone crowds you, and uh, someone gets your parking place. Paul said, you as a believer is not to lose your temper. Paul is saying, you, you be careful. You have some long-suffering. And oh, how that we need patience. The Bible, I think, the verse this afternoon says, after we've done the will of God, we have need of patience. We need patience in our homes. We need patience in our churches. We need patience even with ourselves. And oftentimes, circumstances, when they're not pleasant, oh, how that we can uh, become the opposite of, of what he tells us here. Uh, keep in mind, these are commands. These are not suggestions. This is the Spirit of God. This is God's Word saying to us believers what, how we're to behave in view of the coming of the Lord. While we're waiting for that event, we're to incorporate these principles, these exhortations in our life. And then, after he tells us to be patient toward all men, verse 15 gives us now the, the eighth and, and the ninth, both of them's in verse 15. The eighth and the ninth commandment. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, not, not just his brother again, any man, but... Ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Someone has said there's three levels that we can operate on. There's what uh, one calls the, uh, the demonic level. Uh, that's how the devil operates, and that's returning evil for good. Or there's the human level, that's returning good for good and evil for evil. You mistreat me, I'll mistreat you back. You do something good to me, I'll do something back. That's the way most people think. You take me to dinner, I'll take you to dinner. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I mean, sad to say, most Christians sometimes. That's our philosophy, but that's not what the Bible says here. The demonic level of living is giving evil for good. The devil does that. Uh, human level is good for good and evil for evil, but the divine level... The way God lives and the way God admonishes us to behave as Christians is returning good for evil. That's what he says. Look at it again. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but the opposite he's talking about, and Paul, he talks about this other places, especially Romans 12 when he was very practical. He says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. God said, somebody mistreat you. Don't you set out to mistreat them. Someone say something unkind to you if we're not careful. When we hear of something that someone has sort of maligned us or they've misrepresented us, every last one of us, there's something in us, wants to think of something that's negative about them and tell back about them. Now think with me, if we're honest. We can hear somebody said something, you know, that's a little, uh, maybe a little hurtful, pointed, being a little critical. Somebody, and oftentimes it, it may be truthful. It may be somebody knows us well enough, knows some of our faults, and they say something that way about it. And if we're not careful, the first time we, we have the opportunity, we think of something about them. If we're honest, every last one of us has been there. And the Holy Spirit, if we'll, if we'll walk with him, be into, he, he'll start to check us. Uh, don't pass that on. 
Don't say, even though if it's true, don't. It won't help you. It won't help them. But I promise you these commandments we learned last week, it takes more than just human ability. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit for us to be the Christians right here that God wants us to be. So he says, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil. But uh, he tells us in the latter part of the verse, but ever follow that which is good. And he's simply talking about returning good even for evil. When somebody sits out to hurt you, you go ahead and be good back to them, both among yourselves and to all men. And so we've come now to verse 16, and here's a little unit again. He, first, he had the first three in a unit. He's talking to the church about their leaders. And then he, he talks in general about some things down to verse 16. But verse 16, 17, and 18, and if you have, a, uh, if you have a, uh, access to the word studies, you'll find in the Greek New Testament where this was translated from, it makes it so clear that these three are put together. And really, in verse 18, let's look at it first. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, after, in the, in the Greek New Testament, he says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. And then he's saying, Those three things is the will of God for you. So right here is something that we ought to just put a star over beside. Sometimes people are, are wondering, What is God's will for my life? Well, right here's three things. It's very clear that God says, without any confusion, This is the will of God. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything. Now note he did not say for everything. Sometimes it becomes a little unreal and even fanatical and something insincere when you hear people just, and you know their hearts is not in it, just trying to praise the Lord for every negative thing that comes. And that's not, that's not what the verse means. Look what he's saying in verse 16. Believe me, this is another uh, difficult order. This is another difficult commandment to incorporate and make a part of our life. In fact, it's impossible without his power and without him controlling us. To rejoice evermore doesn't mean on our lips we're saying something all the time. That's not the idea at all. Let me see if I can illustrate. It's the opposite of uh, attitude of complaining and murmuring. We'll learn when we go through the Philippian letter that he says, do all things without murmuring and complaining. And that's what it means to rejoice. And he tells us in the Philippian letter, he says, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. Disciples came back one time and they were so excited. They had unusual power. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said, yes, but don't rejoice in the fact you've got power over demons. He says, rejoice that your names is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. You know what he's saying? There may come a day when you don't have the power to kick the devil around. There may come a time then, if that's the reason you rejoice, and if you just rejoice in your situation, there'll come a day you'll lose your joy. He said, you let this be the basis and the source of your rejoicing is that your names are recorded. And they tell us in their literal language there, it says they stand recorded. And the word that's used as if they could never be un un unwritten in the Lamb's book of life. And he said, that's the reason to rejoice. Do you know if you're down in any way we can look physically, financially, or any way we want to talk about tonight, there's one thing never changes, and that's your relationship to the Lord God because you're born in God's family. He didn't say rejoice in our circumstances. Sometimes circumstances are not very pleasant. And if we had to just rejoice in circumstances, we'd lose the joy. And so he says, rejoice evermore. He's saying, uh, instead of having an attitude of murmuring and complaining, he said, let it one be one of joy. And of course, joy, we'll, we've learned, is the fruit of the Spirit. Then he says, pray without ceasing. Someone asked, said, does that mean that I'm to be on my knees always? Does that mean that I'm to be uttering a prayer, have a prayer uh, upon my lips? Of course, Paul wasn't on his knees always, and neither was our Lord on his knees always. And Paul wasn't saying a prayer, if you please. He wasn't doing that always, and of course that's not what that means. You may want to write a word down beside that that makes that came, come so alive. The, the word is communion. And the idea Paul has here, and it's very clear when you look at the word study, he is saying where it says praying without ceasing, he's talking about that communion being unbroken, uh, that fellowship of being in touch with the Lord. 
I was blessed again the day as I was listening to a tape of a man and on prayer and uh, ministry and he had one of the most successful ministries any man I've ever read from the large crowds year after year came to hear him preach you know what he said he said of my awake hours since I come to know Jesus Christ I think I'm safe in saying there's never been over 15 minute period that I wasn't conscious of the presence of Jesus Christ that's what it means to pray without ceasing. That Catholic monk, Brother Lawrence, back yonder many years ago, wrote that book that still speaks to your heart in such a powerful way. They affectionately called him Brother Lawrence, and he wrote a book entitled Practicing God's Presence. And he was around the kitchen where the big pots and pans were, and he said God's presence became so real to him that in his awake hours he was never unconscious of the presence of the Lord. I wonder if we know anything about praying without ceasing. We're not careful. We will say prayers. Now, that also means, of course, to have your times of prayer. Daniel prayed three times a day, let nothing bother him. I think the Apostle Paul had times, his stated times, that he went alone and prayed. I'm for having those quiet times, and we must make time. But God wants us to live in the way when we're riding down the highway. We can be conscious of him wherever we're at. Never put ourselves in, in fellowships and with companies that, that we couldn't be conscious of him. Don't get associated in something that would grieve him and, and just, just walk with him. Be, be conscious of the presence of the Lord. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. It's what our Lord had in mind when he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He talked about abiding in me and, and, and I'll abide in you. And he says we do it through his word. Then he says you can ask what you will if it be done unto you. I wonder if we know anything about praying without ceasing, practicing his presence. And then he says, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I do not think there's any situation that a believer, that if you put these other two uh, admonitions in his life, he'll set out to stay in communion with the Lord and have an attitude of joy and not one of complaining, not one of murmuring. I believe that anything comes in his life, God will enable him to still give thanks because God is still in control. Anything we can think of tonight, it could have been worse. I had a person say to me just oh, a few days ago, and really, from the human standpoint, it was a tragedy. But you know what they said? One thing I praise God for, my loved one knew Jesus Christ. And I thank God for that. And I didn't thank God for the, uh, what they had to experience, and it was a tragic thing. They didn't say, I thank God, that happened to my loved one the way it did. But they did say, in the midst even of a tragedy, I thank God my loved one, knew Jesus Christ. And so, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, these next three, they're sort of in a unit also. We don't see them here in the, uh, in the way they are in our Bible, but when Paul was first saying them, before they was translated from the way he gave them to that church, he sort of put these in a unit. The last three there, they were together. These next three, verse 19, 20, and 21, quench not the spirit, that's uh, verse 19, that's the 13th commandments, we looked at these, despise not prophesyings, that's the, the 20th com com commandment, and, uh, or I'm sorry, that's the 14th commandment, that's the 20th verse, and then the 15th commandment says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, now keeping that in mind, It'll make that a little more meaningful to you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. In the New Testament church, there were still both apostles and prophets. In the church today, there is neither. That shocks some people. Paul was saying to his mother and I, the other morning we was having devotion together. After he gotten up, he works evenings and gets in near the midnight hour and he'd turn TV on. And I'm not going to give a plug for the fellow because you might want to go watch him and I don't recommend him. And uh, he was telling me some things he was saying and some claims he was making. He said, Dad, if I understand, there's not apostles today, are there? And I said, no, there's no apostles in the church today. Apostle was one who had to see the living Lord and be commissioned by the Lord himself. And those apostles and the prophets of that day, 
You see, the Bible says, and I won't take time to go in detail, but you'll find it in the, in the Ephesian letter. It talks about the church and says the Jesus Christ being the, the, the foundation stone, the cornerstone, and then in the foundation, listen carefully, in the foundation was laid apostles and prophets. And then the building starts up with believers like living stones placed in the building. Now, any builder knows in here that you don't constantly lay a foundation. You don't lay a foundation one time to the building. Am I right, builders? You don't stop way up here somewhere and start a foundation again, and the foundation's made up first of Jesus Christ, and then the apostles, then the prophets. And then when the New Testament was completed, you see, in that day, God gave his message directly through the Holy Spirit to a prophet. And a prophet stood up in the audience like this and would say to that church, God said this. Are you listening? That same fellow tonight got up and said, God just told, and told some things that was contrary to the word of God. You know what it means to prove all things? It means to examine the message. How do you do it? Thus saith the Lord. I'm no critic, but when anyone crosses this blessed book here and claims some things the Bible don't teach, I have the authority of the Word of God to say, that person is not authentic, that person is not real, he's not genuine, and you don't need to follow that person. We don't need someone standing up today and telling us some message they got from God. God's given us everything he wants us to have, and he's, he's closed the book, and he warns about adding to or taking away from the Word. I visited a woman not long ago who was influenced with that kind of teaching. What she said to me, she said, it doesn't make a lot of difference to me what the Bible says. It's what the preacher gets from God while he's preaching. That's heresy. That's dangerous. Preacher don't get something from God while he's preaching. Now, I believe God can inspire the preacher by the Holy Spirit. Don't misunderstand me. And I think he can illuminate the truth and open the truth. Don't miss me. But God's not given new revelations of truth. He's closed the book. And what we need to know about heaven and hell and salvation and the victorious life and all the rest, he has it in this book right here. I'm not being ugly or unkind. Well, my brother's picked up a fellow. He rides to work with him. He told him, long ago said, and they claimed to have apostles and prophets in their church. He said, one of the prophets got a message directly from God last night. And the brother said, well, really? Yeah. He said, well, it was, it was revealing. He said, you see, we've had a split in our church for two or three months. And he said, there's a group that sits here that won't speak to a group that sits here. And said, the prophet got a message last night and God told him, if they don't get back together, the church's going to fall apart. Well, you don't have to have a special revelation, amen? I can tell you that without any kind of special revelation. I can tell you that. That's what's already been revealed. A house divided will never stand. But you see, in that day, there were some that that's the way God spoke. And yet, because there was error in the church, many of them weren't, wasn't listening to any truth. And he said, wait a minute, don't quench the Spirit. Keep in mind, they didn't have a New Testament. Keep in mind, they couldn't say turn to John, James, Luke, or Acts, or Revelation. They didn't have that. And so Paul was saying, don't, don't despise prophesying altogether. Because when that prophet stood up in that day, it'd be a message. Not necessarily just foretelling the future like an Old Testament prophet. It was foretelling. And to prophesy now in the New Testament sense, it's to foretell the truth. Just give out the truth. Teach the Word of God. Did you know there's people, and don't let me throw you a curve here. Anybody that knows me knows I love music. But I know people who drive across town and sit all night for singing. They don't care for the Bible. They don't care for teaching. They don't care for preaching. I went one time, I wasn't aware, and I'm not being ugly. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm not, and I'm for, and I'm for, I love the, I love the groups of singers. If they live clean, love God, not a bunch of hound dogs, I love to hear them sing. So I'm not against that. So please don't read something in that I'm not saying. But they had me in a place once where they was, I didn't know who all was there. There's, there's thousands of people out on tour. They had me to come say some words, and when they thought it was going to be a little preaching, it was despised. It was depreciated. And Paul is saying here, he's talking about what is prophesying in the literal New Testament sense? It's the giving out the word. It's teaching the word. It's preaching the word. And he's saying, don't despise. Don't put down the word of God. 
Anybody listen to me, anybody knows me personally, knows anything about me, knows that I love a balance, and I've always said in my ministry, you can the, the, a church that's strong will be built with a good music program that's alive with the Spirit of God on it, and then, thus saith the Lord, not ashamed of the Bible, don't take away, don't add to it, just give out His Word. And that's why I've dedicated myself to just preach through book after book. God doesn't say I have to apologize or prop it up. He says just give out my word and I'll bless my word. And tonight, thank God, it doesn't have to be propped up. Just preached and taught and shared and given out. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast. That which is good. What's that mean? Well, he's saying how do you prove them? By the Bible. Hold fast that which is truth. So those three go together. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Then he closes his letter. The, the last uh, uh, commandment, there's some other overlapping ones you'd find here, but the last one I have down tonight is in verse number 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Uh, Literally, it says this, to stay away from all forms of wickedness. Something's wicked, something that's ungodly, something that's unchristian, something that's anti-Bible. Paul was just simply saying, he said, stay away from it. Abstain from it. There's no, no argument about it. It's just a command. He says, just stay away from it. Then there is an overshadowing mean here also that something that would give a wrong appearance. Tell us that that interpretation is there. I mean, uh, be careful that we don't put ourselves in situations that uh, could give an appearance of evil. For instance, let me see if I can illustrate. I had some car trouble once, and the car quit right in front of a liquor store. I mean, that I pulled on their property. And there was a phone. I could see it inside the door. <laughs> the next place was at least a block or two away, and it was in the neighborhood near where I pastored before. And I scratched my head and thought, now, I'm not going to buy any liquor. And boy, I, I've never heard the Lord, or it seemed like the Lord said to me, it'd be hard to convince somebody that knows you if they saw you come out of that place. Oh, I was in there using the phone. I didn't even take a second look. I walked on down the road, cold as it could be, and wrapped myself up and called for one of the associates to come get me, and my old card quit over there. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to give an appearance of evil. Now, God knew, I hear people say sometimes, it's none of anyone's business. Yes, it is. It's everyone's business if you're a Christian. We don't live unto ourselves or die unto ourselves, and we ought to be careful in, in places we put ourselves, in situations we put ourselves. It could give a wrong appearance, and the Bible says don't let your good be evil spoken of. What you may be doing may be good in itself, but if it can be evil spoken of and cause a weak believer to stumble, he says we have the responsibility not to put ourselves in a place to cause someone else to stumble over our behavior. Well, verse 23 following, now after there's, there's, the, there's the negative side, he's saying abstain from it. The positive said the very God of peace. Sanctify you wholly. Look at the word. It's not H-O-L-Y, but it's W-H-O-L-L-Y. It means entirely. And he's going to talk about the spirit, the soul, and the body. We'll talk about the total person here. We're bought with a price, and we're to glorify God not only in our spirit and the soul. There has the idea of that inner person, that uh, the mind, really, and that covers the will and so on. And the uh, spirit here is that eternal part of us, and the body, of course, is, that, is the tabernacle that houses the soul and spirit. And he's saying we're to be, we've already learned what sanctification is back in chapter 4, set apart for his purpose, for his glory. And Paul is saying, I pray that the total person, all of you, will be sanctified and you'll be preserved blameless on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He anticipates that day, looks out there when we will be completely set apart, we'll be blameless. And Paul is praying that now that sanctification will be progressive and we'll be used body, soul, and spirit for the glory of God. And he says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. And that's so encouraging. Bible says in Philippians 1, 6, he who started the work will finish it. If you've had a call of salvation and you're in the family of God, you're going to get there. God's faithful. He's the one who's going to get you there. And so he said, who also will do it. 
You see, this church had been taught they were in the tribulation period. We'll learn that in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. He writes this second letter to correct those errors. And he was saying to them, God's, God's going to get you there. Brethren, pray for us. Verse 25. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Verse 26. Keep in mind the cultural aspect of this admonition. That was the way in that age. That was their culture. They greeted one another. Men kissed the men on the cheek. The ladies kissed the ladies on the cheek. It'd be equivalent today, as, as, as one writer says, greet everyone with a handshake. That's our culture. That's our greeting. Uh, not necessarily kissing one another. It'd be a, the, the greeting the brethren with a handshake. That'd be equivalent to what he's saying here. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That concludes the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. We skipped over some in chapter 3 because we come to the very truth again, and also in 2. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed.